You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Greetings. Welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, <laughs> wherever you are in the world, it's it's lovely to be with you again. This is Abram. Uh, welcome to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. I'm super excited about this episode. Uh, it's honestly... It is one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. Whoa, big yeah. statement. Wow. Yep. Okay. Seriously, it's true. I'm not lying. Um yeah, honestly, it's it's uh it's on it's with with a guy named Michael Naylor. He lives in uh Portland, Maine. And oh my gosh, it's be- pretty beautiful where he lives, but yeah. he he is a specialist in um the realm the world of addiction as well as the Enneagram and he partners these two things uh, just unlike anybody and it's really really beautiful and brilliant and helpful and i think you guys are gonna love this episode what do you what do y'all think drew creek yeah it was fantastic fascinating application of deep enneagram wisdom like michael knows Mm. his stuff with regards to addiction and recovery and with regards to the enneagram and to see him bring those uh, worlds together is really profound and inspiring and interesting to me. So it, I, I loved this conversation that we had with him. It was especially special for me being that he's an older four, which I don't <laughs> get to, I don't even think I've ever. He actually said he's a thousand years old on the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Creek yeah. had a little glimpse into his future. Is that what we're hearing? <laughs> I mean, gave and him he some liked hope. what he saw. Uh, yeah. Gave yeah. me some hope. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so it was pretty great. I enjoyed I had a little bit of therapy session with him <laughs> during the episode, which is pretty great. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, just to just to hear the work that he's done and the thing that I'm imagining will be is an actual possibility mm. for being able to step outside of my type patterns and actually enjoy life for the most part. So yeah, yeah, it was really is really great for me, and definitely looking forward to connecting with him more and hopefully having him back on for some other things because he is just an infinite well of goodness. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. While we talk about uh, addiction, recovery, the Enneagram, if that's not a part of your story or someone near you and their story, this is still really valuable, important work that Mm -hmm. applies to all of us, regardless of where we are kind of in those worlds or out of those worlds. And to qualify him more, if anyone needs that, you know, he, he was actually on the faculty, part of the faculty at the Enneagram Institute in New York. Mm, so this yeah. guy, like you said, Drew, he there knows his stuff. He really yeah, does. does. Mm-hmm. And just a heads up here, there are a few four-letter words. So if you are listening either at work or with children, just mm-hmm. to be aware of that. Awesome. So without further ado, here's Michael Naylor. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. We're really grateful to have you on. And we're just, we're excited about how this conversation is going to unfold with you, man. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So for starters, uh, we'd, we'd love to just kind of hear a bit about yourself. We'd love to introduce you to our listeners and uh, hear some of your background um, and then also just your Enneagram origin story, if you will. Sure, sure. Well, uh, my background is in you know both uh, the addiction world and uh, personal transformation. So 
my my origin story in 1996 my therapist teacher when i was going through a, a difficult time i had been in recovery for about 15 years and um was still not feeling particularly good and he said why don't you read uh Don Riso's book, Personality Types, and make sure to look at the type four. Hmm. And uh, I said, okay. And I read the type four, and I was like, oh, my God. It's like somebody looked down into my soul and uh, saw everything that was weird and strange about me that uh, I happened to take pride in, uh, but was also causing me a lot of my suffering. So it's really a shock to uh, have somebody articulate my inner world without ever meeting me. Mm-hmm. So uh, that sold me to its validity, and um, and from there I started, you know, working with it, and then along the way got involved in something called the Gurdjieff work. And if you know anything about Gurdjieff, he brought the uh, Enneagram to the West, and you know, really in a lot of ways, the way we use the Enneagram today has its foundation in the work he did. So it just started uh, uh, doing that, and and then uh, in two thousand. Along the way, I was working as an addictions therapist, and in 2006, I started working with the Enneagram Institute, and I met Russ Hudson, just felt an instant kinship with him, and um, turned out they were just starting a, a teacher program, and I went through their program in a year and became one of their teachers and then became a faculty member. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I today, uh, you know, I do a lot of coaching. Uh, Enneagram coaching and addiction coaching, combining both the Enneagram and addiction, and anything that has to do, you know, regardless of your type, there's, there's challenges. So, and then I teach, you know, I have been teaching around the country when uh, we could still fly places, but uh, yeah. yes. all, all my work is through Zoom now, which is mm-hmm. great. It's worked out just fine. It's just really uh, one of my favorite things to talk about. It's, uh, yeah. I, really, I really love the work. So. Yeah, um, we're we're so excited to unpack um, the Enneagram and addiction. Kind of your sounds like to your legendary, you know, Jedi master area. You know, um, yeah. But where are you? Are, where are you? Are, am I remembering right? You're in Maine. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in uh, I'm in South Portland, Maine. That's right. Mm. Yeah, and you head up the what is it? The the main? Uh, it's the it's the it's the one that's connected to the institute, right? Well, no, mine is uh, independent. So, oh, is it? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's the main Enneagram Center for Transformation and Well-Being. Right. And, um, you know, I still uh, teach uh, courses through the Enneagram Institute, but it's all okay. done, uh, you know, separately. And, and other, I do other independent workshops around. And I, I've been here in Maine, um, gosh, a long time. I think uh, since about 19... 19- 78. I uh, came from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, and uh, lived here with my, my wife and my, my two kids. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so, and it's very cold today here in South Portland. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. So just a couple uh, couple quick questions to mm-hmm. more like rapid fire answers, right? So sure. if someone were to come up to you, you got into an elevator, right? <laughs> Painting the picture here. And they're like, what is the Enneagram? You got you got three floors to answer. <laughs> what would you say? Well, I'd say the Enneagram is uh, the study of the strengths and weaknesses of the nine types of personality. And its purpose is to assist people in discovering their unconscious patterns that are causing them what I would call unnecessary suffering 
and mm-hmm. to guide them towards more and more liberation from from the patterns they acquired as a little one. Mm-hmm. That, that would be my explanation of the Enneagram. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I, I'd ride that elevator. That's a good description. <laughs> Let's yeah. go another couple floors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what would you say is the greatest myth about the Enneagram? The greatest myth? Uh, well, I don't know if any in, anything in particular stands out, but I think that there is a, uh, a misunderstanding sometimes where people... Th- Feel like well if I if I discover my type I should be able to clean my life up in about two or three weeks mm-hmm. and uh, it's more like crawling on your hands and knees uh, learning as you go along and and you know taking four steps forward and three steps back so there's you know uh, once you learn about your patterns then you get to observe them for four or five years before you begin to uh, relax some of your addiction to them and just have more freedom mm-hmm. and but it's great. It's great to be able to see it. So, you know, it really ends up being a pretty strong path of humility. Once you start learning to observe yourself, if you really do it well, you will be, as my one of my mentors said, Michael, if you haven't apologized this week, you're not paying attention, oh. which which means that we, you know, <laughs> wow. we're, we're human and we trip every week. So, mm-hmm. uh, but the Enneagram wow. is such a great tool for observing that and, and being able to close the gap on actions that I need to apologize for and, and not belabor mm. it and put it off. Yes, 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 yes. So um, you identify as a type four, correct? Yeah, type four is a five wing yep. for the most part. Okay, same. Um, <laughs> and uh, from a four to a four, does it get any easier? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. what I want to know. It, it gets easier and then it gets harder. And then it gets easier oh, and it's <laughs> harder. So, uh, you know, it's mm. kind of like the idea that we're traveling a spiral downward. Mm-hmm. And so we revisit sort of core issues at deeper and deeper levels. But we have more uh, awareness and strength. And so, you know, uh, we go through tough, tough times. But I think that uh, <clears throat> each time we, we go through another revolution, we have more freedom, more capacity yeah. to mm. experience joy, love, compassion, connection. But it's uh, so four steps forward, three steps back. That's that yeah. paradigm, I think, is pretty accurate. Mm, and, yes. I, and I saw that you had sort of a reaction to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the journey. Oh, uh, yeah. Couple, sp- couple spirals down for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> one, one, last, one last question, and then we'll get into some other topics here. What's something that you in your four pattern that you've you've spiraled down far enough into that if your 20-year-old self were to look at yourself now would have been like how 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 is that a thing how how are you actually doing that uh it's a little complicated about uh, <laughs> let me tell you what i thought i heard it was that you know what's the difference between age 20 and and now that i'm almost sure. a thousand years old uh, okay. That, uh, that is what you said, Creek. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What said. But uh, yeah. So so if you think about the patterns of the Type Four, mm. where uh, on a bad day they get self-absorbed with with intense emotion and and feeling like an outsider and like they don't fit and you know regardless of how old they are, like they've wasted their entire life and haven't discovered their authentic expression. That pattern of feeling like the outsider and just feeling sort of disconnected from humanity at, at, at my worst, the four of the five wing, that has uh, softened a thousandfold 
So mm. I can still, mm. on, a, on a bad day, go there, but I'm more pleasant and can pull myself out about 20 times better than when I was uh, 20 years old, where I might just sort of build a small cathedral and hang out there for seven or eight months and then pop out and, and see humanity again. So there's been a lot of growth and maturation and freedom from getting hooked. But I, mm. I, I still get hooked, and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, I figure in four or five lifetimes I will have it handled. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Awesome. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, mm-hmm. Michael, we're going we're gonna to get into the topics of addiction and recovery. I hope hope at a fairly deep level, but before we do, given that a lot of your work is with the Enneagram and addiction to recovery, I'm wondering if you could share maybe one of your favorite kind of transformation stories of working with someone in this space of maintaining boundaries and mm-hmm. uh, privacy, of course. But if do you have, does a story come to mind that you could share? The gift of the Enneagram for somebody in recovery, particularly if they've been relapsing a lot, is that it gives them a language and a map for where they, where they are sitting and why they struggle so hard and the way home. Mm. So I can think of, uh, you know, a, a couple, you know, there's a number of people that when they discovered the Enneagram and they discovered their type, it was like they were incredibly relieved that, you know, the trouble they went through wasn't because they were a bad person. Mm-hmm. But it was because they were caught up in the in the cage of their type, down at the unhealthy levels, and so it, you know creates a, a immediate sense of hope and possibility. And then, of course, it also can instruct somebody, teach somebody how do I start to soften these patterns that tend to hook, hook me and have me feeling desperate and using substances again. So I can think of a type one, type five, I work with who, you know, when the light. When he discovered the Enneagram, it's like all of his guilt just vanished for all the times he had attempted. Wow. And he felt a sense of, you know, I'm not a bad person. And then, you know, started working with practices, you know, meditation practices, getting in his body, uh, being mindful around how he might, as a strategy for taking care of himself, accumulate lots of knowledge and stay away from people and feel like they're basically all idiots and then not yeah. reaching out to them to for support and and then, uh, you know, gradually worked his way back into uh, really healthy relationships. Yeah. So, you know, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. And, but that's, you know, when people see, oh, there's, there's somebody knows about this and I'm not a bad person, that can be really huge in terms of inspiring them to have hope. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. It, it makes me wonder then, especially given how you've mentioned a few times, four steps forward, three steps back is kind mm-hmm. of the pattern. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, uh, in working with clients who are in recovery, mm-hmm. what it, what have you had to learn <laughs> as their coach mm-hmm. to kind of maybe weather that or uh, be mm-hmm. mindful of that? Mm-hmm. You know, four steps forward, three steps back, and any lessons that you could pass on to us? Well, yeah, I think you know, as a for me as a coach, I'm aware that that each type has a way they get hooked on their patterns. And drop back into despair or hopelessness. So you know you can, uh, if you you know, if I'm working with a type four and they're making progress, we'll have a conversation, which is at some point your patterns are going to get triggered, hmm. and you're going to forget all the progress you made. You're going to feel like it's hopeless, and that, so that's okay. That's not a bad sign. It's just that we can be prepared for it with uh, mindfulness practices or 
or things to do when you get caught in that fog bank uh, so that you don't feel like, gee, I, I haven't gained any ground. Because people all the time, regardless of how long they've been in the program of recovery, will hit their patterns, will pop up again. And if they know in advance that that's going to happen, they're less scared by it and less discouraged by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know. So for, you know, type threes, what's my, what's the one thing I don't want to feel? I don't want to feel like I'm a failure, I'm a nobody, and, uh, you know, I'm not a shining star. Well, you know, that, whatever that is, that's going to get triggered at some yeah. point. And, and so as long as I know I need to reach out for help, I need to talk about it, uh, there's practices I can do, then I go forward and I don't try to do it solo. Yeah. Mm. Now that resonates. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's that's so good. I really think that will probably help our listeners just to understand. You know, as we're as we're growing, as we're changing, and as we're opening ourselves up, uh, opening up our hearts, we're going to keep being affected, right? And and I think yeah, I, I just keep, I hear you say we're sort of you're normalizing the experience, right? As these things keep returning, that's not a bad thing. That's part of the experience, that's right? Of, and it's all yeah. So someone gets sober and starts working a program, they're basically preparing themselves to be able to navigate these difficult times. Because when mm-hmm. I hit a difficult time, whether it's your, I mean, there's a lot of people after 20 years of sobriety, you know, start to uh, become aware enough that they start to feel some of their undigested suffering. And it can come up and really uh, surprise them such that they all of a sudden they feel as, as bad as they've ever felt. And if you understand the Enneagram and people's growth patterns, you can say, you can expect that. That's not a problem. As long as you get help and talk about it and prepare for it, you'll go right through it. But that's a part of the journey is whatever suffering we've acquired as a little one, at some point, we get healthy enough to be able to work with that suffering and, you know, again, open our heart on a deeper level and and, and move through it. But that's just the the nature of of the spiritual journey in my experience. Right. Right, so we're kind of enhancing our tool set to actually engage this pain for the first time on on a level that we can actually handle it now. Right, and and, yeah. and, and be aware that you know, as we, as one of the things Gurdjieff said, is doing spiritual work alone isn't difficult; it's impossible. So you you need other people around you when you hit these fog banks because you you can't see clearly, but if you got trusted people with you, you'll get through it. Hmm. That's so good. Well, one thing we'd love to to dive a bit deeper, even deeper into, I know that's a specialty of the the four four experience. But we'd love to just get into kind of some of your your more of your expertise on addiction. So, just a simple question for, you know, I think a lot of people just sort of have uh, stereotypical ideas or perspective of what what it means to be addicted to something. And I know there's probably a gambit, but I'd love to hear what is addiction? What does it mean to be addicted to something? It's a it's tricky because there's sort of a, a range of, of yeah. descriptions. So one of the sort of traditional ones is when I've got a an, an action I'm doing or a substance I'm taking that in spite of wanting to change it, it runs me. It has my sense of will around changing the patterns, whatever it might be, whether it's addictive shopping, whether it's a substance, whether it's sexuality, whether it's gambling. That So addiction, the sort of hardline description is that I'm powerless over a certain behavior, and on my, home, on my own, uh, it takes me out. I go into a trance. There's a way that I just, you know, in spite of all my good intentions, 
I go down over and over and over again. And so that, you know, that's addiction. Are there different degrees of that? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some people, you know, we say that there's beginning, middle, and late stages. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning stages, you know, people may struggle and get control back and then struggle. And then they hit a point in the middle stage where their ability to really make choices, uh, conscious choices, against the addiction disappears. And then the late stage is when the person is completely engulfed in it. And most people get into treatment in the middle stages when they're starting to suffer on a regular basis. So that's that. That's one way of describing it. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure other there's probably a hundred different takes on it, right. but that, that's mine. Uh, you know, I've been in recovery myself for, you know, about, you know, 38, 39 years, and so I've been, you know, working as an addiction counselor and seen a, a, a big range. And some people mm-hmm. don't get addicted until they're 35 and they pick up a drink, and next thing they know, they're struggling with addiction, and maybe they didn't struggle at all for the first 35 years. So there's a lot of variation in how it happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I wonder about the experience of, you know, reasoning with myself. That's not me. That I, that wouldn't, I, I'm not addicted to this thing. You know, this level of denial. I'm, I know that's a big part of it, right? When you finally have to face your powerlessness. Um, I'm, I'm curious about how, how does, in your, your long experience working with people, how do people finally come to that space? Because it's, and I know probably even dependent on Enneagram type that looks different as well. Well, uh, the problem with, let's say, substance abuse, it's sort of like the nature of, of addiction. And again, this is my story on it, so it's not it's my uh, anecdotal take, which is that when people start doing things that violate their values, uh, often it's extremely painful, and they uh, have this way of sort of dropping into amnesia and not really tracking exactly what's been happening. Uh, and, and so their ability to kind of call up the pattern and look back over the past year and go, oh, my God, my wife or my husband has been nagging me about this. But when I look back over the past year, I don't see a problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine because I don't really go back farther than 48 hours. Right. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. particularly if it's a substance. It's like my memory gets completely messed up around seeing my problem where everybody else sees it. So there's a, you know, it's almost like, uh, and again, this is my story, it's there's like a, almost like this little critter inside of you that, you know, uh, you know, blows a fan of, of, you know, amnesia fog and like you get up in the morning and it's like, it's all good. I don't see why you're all mad at me or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. So, you know, we call that denial, but I, I really call it, the problem is with addiction, you know, if you're looking at, like in, at the Enneagram Institute, we talk about nine levels of help mm-hmm. and when people start to get caught up in their patterns with addiction their level of awareness drops down to about level six and the problem at level six is i can no longer objectively observe myself mm-hmm. so at level six and down the real problem is that you're a pain in the ass giving me a hard time but, that, <laughs> but that's because my uh, my window on reality you know at, we talk about the first three levels, it's like you, you can talk about objective reality. When I'm healthy, my camera lens is wide. But if I get less healthy and get addicted to whatever the, the activity is or the addiction, it's like I start looking out of a smaller and smaller lens, and I can't see the effect I have on people or on my life. So, you know, denial, is that happening? Well, yeah, I, I just can't see reality. And uh, it's not because I'm uh, 
mean-spirited evil person. I'm just blind. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, what wakes people up? Boy, if I knew how, how to make that happen, I'd be a trillionaire. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's often just divine intervention, or it can be, you know, a light goes on when I'm almost dead, or mm. maybe it's that one time somebody reaches out to me with kindness and it somehow penetrates the, the web I'm in. You know, I, I think that one of the most powerful things is just genuine kindness and, mm-hmm. and encouragement that breaks through a lot of the suffering. But it's a, it's a tough one. I see a lot of people come into recovery who are very sincere. And, and it's like uh, we often say, when you're at an AA meeting, your patterns are in the parking lot doing push-ups, right? Oh. So, so, when wow. you come, so when you come out and you go, man, I'm having a great day, and you get jumped uh, wow. in ways that you didn't expect... Man. So a lot of a lot of people have to relapse a lot before they finally get it. I often would notice that sometimes it would take people about seven years before they finally got it in their soul that they're wow. in, tr- in trouble. So it's a it's a it's really a tricky uh, phenomena. Yeah. So huh. I, I have another just question that came into mind. Then is would you say that there's a direct correlation between someone's quality of presence and level of addiction? Well, that's tricky too because. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes there's this phenomena of compartmentalizing. So what happens is extraordinary teachers, beautiful presence when they teach, walk out the door, drink or eat addictively, and don't, it's like the right hand can't see what the left hand's doing. So so they may take people and really inspire people to get on a a spiritual journey and be very powerful and end up dying of addiction themselves. And that happens more Mm. often than one realizes. So there's a way, you know, one of the things Gurdjieff talked about and and other teachers too, is that, is that we develop these buffers from actually seeing what we're doing. Mm. And and the work of the Enneagram is really to sort of dissolve the buffers and then suddenly see yourself as you are, which usually in the beginning doesn't cheer anybody up. And then, Mm. then they, they get inspired and they grow. That's been that's one of the oddities of the whole recovery thing in terms of presence and, and addiction. That makes me think of sorry guys, and I, I, feel free to chime in as well. I'm just I was thinking of an author back here. Yeah, I was wondering uh, what you were what were you looking at there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking back here at an author named uh, I'm not sure if you know Michael uh, Brennan Manning. I've I've heard of the the name, mm-hmm. but I don't know the person. Yeah, he was this really influential. I don't know how you describe him. He was a, he was a speaker, but he was incredibly inspirational, and he and he just kind of brought people into. He would say that what's a, a good quote from him? Something like, "God loves you as you are, not as you should be." Mm-hmm. Uh, but this guy was unbeknownst to everyone, he was influencing thousands of people mm-hmm. on a regular basis. But unbeknownst to everyone, on the weekends he would haul up in a hotel and drink himself to sleep the whole time. Yep. But he yeah. was doing both of these things. That's right. right. Well, there are some pretty amazing teachers that have had that same story. So it's a mystery. What uh, and, you know, people can have. Again, it's, it's this phenomena of compartmentalizing. It doesn't really make sense that if someone's really present and teaching and working with somebody, and then they walk out the door, and it's almost like this other. Well, you know, in the Gurdjieff work, they talk about that each of us has a more than one I or identity. So you got this, uh, mm. you know, so part of the work in recovery is noticing, oh, there's this character inside of me that in spite of my deep wish to grow and mature, 
that doesn't give a shit about my growth. And and when and when that <laughs> guy comes up, it's almost like he, you know he's captivating he she and and all of a sudden my addictions look pretty interesting and I don't even recognize that it's the opposite of what I want. So it's a it's a powerful phenomena and that's why you know as I was always told you know on this spiritual journey this recovery it's important to have at least three men in your life michael who are smarter and wiser than you because the farther you go along the better your bullshit is hmm. it's, so, it's so good you can't even tell when you're bullshitting yourself wow. and, and and so that's a real thing you got to have people around you who can help you when you dissolve into some sort of ego structure and thinking that you're you know uh, beyond uh, problems and but you know it happened I mean if you follow many spiritual traditions there's always a story about the great teacher suddenly falling off and and going off and you know in down down the levels of hell so you know mm -hmm. it can be perilous if you don't have friends uh, watching you I think in the in the wider Enneagram community that are often a little bit more misled on some level uh, they, they equate certain addictions to certain types. Hmm. And I wonder, can you comment on that at all, of its accuracy or inaccuracy or... Well, I think it's uh, it's extraordinarily inaccurate. <laughs> so, you know, I've worked with uh, men on the front lines for 20 years, and each type can be addicted to any of the substances. You know, uh, people say, well, you know, the type 9, they like to space out and be laid back. And so, you know, they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to use pot, or uh, heroin, but all the types, you know, die of heroin overdose. So, so it's right. just it's just an inaccurate myth, and I don't know. If it, well, I, I hear those stories occasionally, but they're just not. In my experience, uh, every type can be addicted to any substance, and and they are, and uh, mm -hmm. and so yeah, yeah. Again, it's coming back to the motivation of why, mm -hmm. like why why is the addiction happening? Well, yeah, and and. Each person has a different biochemistry. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. fentanyl for one person may just put them to sleep and they don't like it. And someone else just lights them up and they have these what might be called uh, pseudo essence experience where they feel like, you know, they go to a, another level of spiritual awakeness, but they don't have the tools. They didn't they didn't earn it through their own work. So it just becomes a state that they have to use a drug to get to. Uh, but everybody's different. You know, some people get lit up when they drink alcohol and others uh, do when they, uh, you know, have methamphetamine. So it, it's uh, everybody's biochemistry is a little bit different. Michael, I think that brings up a question. You know, we're talking about personality and addiction here. I'm wondering how you work with or reconcile someone's Enneagram type while they're in recovery and mm -hmm. possible genetics, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe genetic predispositions towards addictions. How do, how do you handle that? Well, it, it's a, uh, people tend to sort of get divided up into a philosophy. Like yeah. one person will say everybody who's addicted, you know, is suffering from childhood trauma. Well, you live on planet Earth, so you're traumatized anyway, right? Yeah. So, so welcome. Uh, you know, you know, it's just like you know, life, life in the DMZ. But uh, <laughs> the point being is that there are some people who haven't had any dramatic abuse of any kind, but appear to be, you know, biochemically predisposed. And and there's some 
research, it's it's not clear cut. Some people say the second they picked up a substance, they were addicted just like that. Other people, yeah. it was a slow motion. So mm. I don't. I've I've seen lots of people who didn't have major trauma who became really deeply addicted, and 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 others who had lots of trauma and didn't get addicted. So. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different combinations. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think just reemphasizing, you're a person, not a type. Like it's it is the person's experience. Right. Yeah. Right. That is the important thing. The story behind that. Yeah. If I know my type and I'm in recovery, I become more aware of what triggers me into less healthy stages. So I can learn to navigate my relationships and notice when my personal. You know, I, I often my story is that. People's defensive Enneagram patterns, I think I think people were born with their type. Can't prove it, but a lot of people think that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a genetic connection with type. But that to the extent that I grew up in a healthy family, then I perhaps will have more access to the positive capacities of my type. To the extent that I had to defend myself to protect my heart, then I may have developed more... Uh, identification with with the defensive patterns of the type, but but again, there, there's there, you can't you can't become dogmatic around it because there's always somebody who who breaks the rule and and it's not mm. the same for them. So I think I think that if there's a a challenge we have in the enneagram world is to not decide that fours are always this way and twos are always this way, but to invite people to investigate and say, well, what's true for you? What do you notice about yourself so that we become more like students learning from from people? Mm, yeah, that's really good. Uh, getting more specific into how you partner the Enneagram with addiction, mm -hmm. I wonder if we could uh, start opening up just the the framework or the 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 psychic structure. Mm -hmm. I know that you kind of you use to navigate a bit of of the types specifically in addiction. Mm -hmm. Could you just kind of name what, what are the building blocks or the pieces that, that form the psychic structure? And then, I don't know, maybe we could even go into just some descriptions of a type, your own or something like, something like that. I guess the place I would start was just with, you say, you know, when a little one is born, often we have the conversation that they're in touch with their innate essence. And it's an immature essence, but, you know, if you've been with a little one, you see this glowing, open, present being who's sensitive to everything, all the impressions that come into him or her. And there's a, there's a, a kind of, uh, you know, a glow that little kids have uh, if they're in a, a safe environment. But because we live on planet Earth, we have to also develop a personality that can navigate the rules of our world and our family, our school, uh, etc. So the conversation we have is that a personality shell forms around the essence and that sort of innate essential nature starts to get sealed off and their personality type fills in to enable them to go forward in the world and uh, depending on their level of safety in their family they may manifest the more positive or less positive aspects but then within that structure we say that every type when they lose contact with essence develops something called a passion and a passion is my really represents my heart heart center wound over losing contact with my essence mm -hmm. everybody on planet earth that will go through that and in some form or another and so for the type four 
the essential wound, the passion, is envy. There's this sort of innate sense that other people got the directions for how to live a life. And I somehow didn't get it. And so you have it, and I don't. And therefore, I hope you fail miserably, and then we can be friends. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, there's a, underneath that envy is a grief. And the grief is this feeling that I've lost contact with something so important to me, and it shows up as a kind of longing. I long for something, and I can't even put my fingers on it. I can remember as a little boy, I just had this deep well of longing, and, and I didn't have a language for it, but in some ways that longing was really my wish to reconnect with my true nature. Hmm. So so you have this passion, and, uh, and you know, for the type four, along with it becomes uh, an over-identification with my mood of the moment. Because it feels like if I just <laughs> understand my mood of the moment, I might be redeemed and be able to head back home. And, oh, here's a new mood. I guess maybe I track that one. Oh, oh there's another one. Well, which one do I... So I start to get caught up in the flow of my emotions and over-identified with it. So, so you have the passion, which is that heart wound, and then you have something called the fixation, which is really the way the head center operates. So for the, the type four, we often say that their fixation is they get caught up in fantasy, idealizing. Gee, if I'd gotten the right parents, I would be this way, and I didn't, so I'm bitter about it. Or um, I start noticing that I can fantasize my life and not show up and actually live out my fantasy. I can just get sort of caught in this uh, dream state of I'm going to be a great... I, I can remember Don Riso, uh, who was my teacher, Don and then Russ Hudson, was a type four, and he said, I had this dream life about being a classical pianist, and I had a piano. And after about 10 years, a friend said to me, do you play that piano? I said, no, I really don't. He said, well, what are you doing? You're, you're having this <laughs> dream about... You don't haven't even taken lessons. No, mm. I haven't. Uh, that's a problem. So, you know, fours can notice they can get, you know, the, the growth move for the fours when they actually start putting into action their their dreams and, and, and all of that. So we have the we have the passion, we have the fixation, and each type has a, a way that their heart and their head center get confused or mixed up or, or scrambled, right? Mm. So, you know, in studying the types, whoever I'm working with, if they know, you know, if we talk about the, those dynamics, it allows for a more mm, sharper ability to observe myself when I'm getting caught up in my less healthy patterns. So we have the potential people, you know, in our school, not all the schools follow this idea of, of levels of health. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are actually dead set against it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, no, we don't do that. Okay, that's all right. But, uh, <laughs> but I noticed that, there, you know, uh, Don Riso came up with nine levels of health. And the more present I am, the more I'm at the higher levels. But when I start to go down the levels and I start to contract and, and my camera lens starts to get smaller, my passion gets more and more active and really directs me. You know, so, you know, type four, when they're healthy, envy is something they hold lightly. They notice it. You know, I can I can look out the window. Someone drives by and I'll suddenly think out of the blue. They have a better life than me, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll feel the stab, and I'll go, wait a second, I don't even know them. They, they, they could be suicidal for all I know, 
but I have enough awareness to go, oh, there's that weird pattern of, hmm. of comparing. And then, but when you go down the levels, it becomes more and more real that I'm the one who didn't get what I needed. Uh, you did. I got ripped off. Uh, and then, you know, and, and along with it starts to become behaviors I start to gravitate towards, like uh, feeling like I'm entitled, that you should just give me my awards. Uh, I shouldn't have to work for it. I'm not going to be ordinary like the rest of you. I need someone to, you know, uh, sort of lift me into stardom just by looking at me. So there's a way when I go down the levels, the passion of my type becomes more compelling and more blinding. And all the types struggle with that, you know, for the, the type three of vanity and feeling like the farther I go down the levels, the more I feel like I am the most awesome person on the planet. And if you would just notice it, we'd have a better day, right? Mm. But, you know, so every type has a, has a way that they go down. And then the other thing we talk about are the arrows. And there's a lot of controversy around the arrows. Some schools will say, if I'm a four, when I'm less healthy or under stress, that I go to two. And when I'm becoming more present and conscious, I go to one. And going to one means that I actually become more practical and more devoted to principles of action as opposed to the mood of the moment, right? And But the truth is, as a four, I notice that I can go to the healthy or unhealthy part of the type one. I can become very micromanaging of people, you know, the less healthy type one, or I can be really responsible and, and take responsibility for showing up for my work and following through. And then going to two, when I'm healthy, you know, I'm in touch with, with really the, the sweetness and the loving kindness, unconditional love of, of the type two. But when I'm less healthy, I start taking victims that, uh, you know, that I own, like, you know, you're mine now. I've got, you know, and I have a way of becoming possessive. So part of the work is to notice as a four, when am I in the healthy manifestation of the one and when am I in the healthy manifestation of the two? Mm. And that, so it's just a perspective. Some schools um, go along with that. Others say, no, uh, we don't agree with that. But I think it's up to each one of us to really observe ourselves and find out, well, how do these dynamics work for me? It's not always the same with each person. That's really good. Um, thank you for, for sharing all that, Michael. Yeah. Um, so when you're working with somebody in recovery, it sounds like, you know, sort of knowing these components of the psychic structure of each type is, is basically kind of used as a, a map with really specific rumble strips that tell us when we're becoming more and more addicted, not only to... Well, maybe we're becoming more and more addicted to our type, which is making us even more unhealthy in the substance we're using. Yeah. Well, it sets us up for, for relapsing because we're going to be more and more miserable. Mm -hmm. And the problem when someone starts to go down the levels of health is they feel more certain that they're correct in their view. It's, it's like even as my window gets yeah. tighter, it's like I know what's real here and, if, you know, and you don't. And so that's that kind of blinding component. And so part of the work uh, for myself as a coach or a therapist is to help people see it when it's happening. Like right now, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to show that pattern of the three. Do you recognize it? You know, do you see the way it's showing up in your life right now? And, and, and let's, let's talk about that and really bring some mindfulness and observation to it because you know where this takes you, right? And so part of my work is, and this is true for all of us, is, is when people start to drop down the levels, they don't have eyes to see it. So part of my work is, is to go, hey, look, right now, this is this is level five, this is level six, 
Do you see it? Can you can you can you sense it? And the more people become aware of that, the more they can catch themselves. You know, we call it the wake up call. We start to see that we have wake up calls that we can see and then, you know, take right action on it. As you do that, as you're culti- trying to help people cultivate their capacity to see, is that just by naming the patterns and uh, for them to so that they can begin to see them? Or what's, what are some of the ways that you help people come awake to start seeing more clearly? Well, the first thing I do is I, really, I have them read uh, sort of the in-depth definition of their type and to highlight what they resonate with. Hmm. And then begin to have conversations about how you show up when you're uh, under stress or afraid or hurt. What do you notice? How has it showed up in your life? How does it show up when you're in a healthy place? And then, you know, as we begin to have a conversation and I do coaching, these particular things that they've talked about, I can use that as a reference and say, see, right now, remember when you talked about that? This sounds really similar. Does this resonate with you? So I really just kind of wave a flag. So that people begin to... In a sense, I become a mirror for them so they can notice, oh, this is how I show up when I go up and down the level. So, you know, in a sense, it's like what people did for me is they gave me eyesight to see when I was starting to close down my window of uh, awakeness and and signal. You know, I have, I have one teacher occasionally who will say, do you hear those violins of self-pity? You hear those? I go, oh. thank you, Steve. I do hear it. Thank you. So I just pointing it out. So you know, so you do it in a way. That certainly, that's not accusative because you no. Know, when I'm getting caught in my pattern, I'm mostly. It's kind of like having a, a slow fog come in, and I can't discern what's real. And, and and you know, sometimes it's quickly. Type four can go from being wide awake to totally asleep in three seconds flat. At least I can. So, I mean, just as a, a story, I can remember one time I was I was driving off to teach a workshop and I suddenly just had this overwhelming sense of joy for all the support my wife has given me through the years, her unconditional love. And hmm. my heart was just opening up and <laughs> I called her up and uh, the recording took my message and I said, you know, I just want to thank you so much for your loving kindness and support and i was just feeling my heart just open and then somebody cut in front of me in traffic (laughs) and all of a sudden i'm going son of a bitch what are you doing (laughs) and i look at my phone i go oh shit i said i said i said i'm back this is the quickest quickest uh comeback i've ever done and thank god we're on the phone here and then she she called me back about 15 minutes later just laughing and said yeah that was a good recovery i said well it's a good thing the phone was there because i was going down the levels that's so, amazing that's, that's human nature in a nutshell though right yeah yeah yeah, it yeah is. for yeah. all of us we get triggered we all have triggers wow yeah i, yeah. I am i am curious because there yeah there there's a symphony of self-pity violins happening <laughs> uh, sometimes 24-7, right? Yeah, yeah. And how how do you balance both acknowledging... Sometimes those those violins are distraction mm-hmm. from actually feeling the actual sadness that's happening. Mm-hmm. Good to notice. How, how do we both... Just how do we not shame ourselves? Oh, I'm talking about myself. How do yeah. I not shame myself yeah. from both having these self-pity violins, mm-hmm. but also like, but this is also really hard and it's and it's hurting and this is a real thing and also just move on, get over yourself. Well, what 
I was was taught and, and what I pass on is this idea, can I learn to observe myself without judgment? So mm-hmm. I noticed, oh, there's the self-pity. Well, I didn't, when I was a little guy, I didn't say, gee, I want to have this self-pity pattern so I can really feel like shit, you know, on a, on a regular mm-hmm. basis, right? It just It just comes in. And there might be a story behind it, but... For sure, if I can notice it with compassion and, uh, and no judgment, then sometimes that can dissolve it. I can notice, oh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm feeling that I'm feeling like you know, uh, I'm feeling a self pity, like I got ripped off. And so, what's underneath it? Well, maybe there's a, a sadness that I'm, you know, I'm not showing up for what I need to show up for. Okay, I don't need to beat myself. It's just great to be able to see it. And then uh, the third piece might be. Well, do I need support for getting in action? You know, yeah. what kind of support do I need? Because, and, and and then I can start to plan for it. If it's a pattern that that takes me out regularly, then you know the things I would be suggesting. What worked for me was uh, noticing that when I get in a fog of self pity, working out, lifting weights, exercising, getting on the stationary bike, going for a walk, yoga, break that that fog pattern, that self-pity pattern, calling somebody up and saying, I'm, I'm in it. I'm just, you know, the, the chorus and violins are loud and I can't get myself out of it. So one of the things we talk a, a lot for all the types is to the extent that you can learn to sense your body more deeply and really go into, you know, as I'm sitting here right now I, and I put my attention on my hands, I can feel sensation bubbling up in my fingers. Well, part of the practice is learning how to do that throughout the body so I become more anchored and able to go into sensation at will when my patterns get triggered. Because if I can divide mm-hmm. my attention, you know, if you're in self-pity, there's like a, a fog fantasy that Scott is feeling sad. But if I can bring some of my free attention down into my body, it breaks mm-hmm. the intensity of the fog. It, it creates kind of a an objectivity, a distance from it. And, and so I can go, oh, wow, this is strong. I better go for a walk or I better go lift weights or I better go swim or whatever it is that gets me in my body. That's that's a key for the type four. And it usually is for everybody. So is that... Mm. Is that- yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. That <laughs> resonates. Um, I, I, yeah, I just... I. I do. I do have patterns of, of being able... Or habits to, to break my habits. Awesome. Um but it is but it is oftentimes just getting to the place where i'm lifting or i'm walking it's just yeah. having enough just an ounce of clarity just to be like you yeah. got to get up and you got to just go do it just go do the that's thing right. grab yourself by fine. the shoulders and let's go uh-huh. right yeah so yep. but that but that's the trick so so one of the things i was taught is to be start to become aware when the pattern starts to whisper because it likes to mm. come in slow, like you don't see it, you don't mm. see it, and then all of a sudden you're looking out of its eyes, right? <laughs> and and then my yes. teacher, my my guidance would say, my mentor would say, when it's got you all the way, you just gotta wait the damn thing out, right? Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. will pass. But if you can wow. s- spot it early on, you know, you can say back Satan or whatever it is, like oh there it mm-hmm. is, it's it's talking to me, it's whispering to me, uh, and so that's you know, and one of the things that one of the classes I teach on the inner critic is about learning to notice, you know, how the the pattern of the four, the inner critic voice that likes to say, you're nobody, your life is futile, 
you'll never be awesome. Why try? You know, no one gets you. Isn't that enough to make you want to shoot yourself? Oh, well, there you are, right? And it's like, oh, thank you for sharing. I, I've watched that movie 9,000 times, and I'm still glued to it. Like, what an awesome movie about me and how hopeless I am. But if I start to notice my movie yeah. and can catch it in scene one, then I, I can, mm. you know, I can do whatever I, I, I that helps me not kind of, I mean, even just spotting it going, oh, scene one is knocking at the door. Hmm. And I can feel mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm kind of attracted to that self-pity. It kind of feels good in a weird sort of way. And, and you know, it's almost comforting because it's familiar. But if I spot that, sometimes I'd say, no, thank you. I'm, I've, I've mm-hmm. done this too many times. But, you know, it's just a practice. So every type has something similar to that, a trance. I often talk mm-hmm. about what's the trance that grabs you? Hmm. And how do you start to notice when it's whispering to you? Because many times it's right first thing in the morning. Wake up, yeah. open your eyes, and here it comes. Here comes the fog. And next thing you know, I mean, I can mm-hmm. I notice for myself after I've had a really prote- particularly fulfilling workshop, the next morning, it's like I wake up feeling like a, a hopeless human being who's never done anything. It's like, oh, well, yeah. you got in while I was sleeping. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. No, it's waking up with a hole in my chest. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. It, sne- it sneaks in at night. Yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I mean, this is a great segue into kind of, on some level, the, the next section around recovery because we're kind of speaking to that mm-hmm. is the process of recovery of, of noticing of different things that we can do to, to hop out of our patterns that are unhealthy so again just a for for the masses how do you re- define recovery there's there's different levels of it one might be that i stop using substances and i no longer harm myself and others and either through AA or a church or counseling or some support group, whatever those patterns were that were eating me up become quieter, hopefully, and I can go forward and just live a, a better life. But usually what happens is people get sober and clean and their patterns are waiting for them. Like, you know, you think, mm-hmm. well, when I get sober, I'm going to just feel so much better. No, uh, you do for a little while, but then all your patterns are there torturing you in one form or another. So, then the conversation is, well, what's recovery then? So, you know, there, there's uh, what I would call healthy recovery, where I develop some kind of mm, spiritual path that allows me to become more and more present, more and more compassionate towards myself and others, more and more comfortable in my own skin, able to communicate more objectively. I mean, that would be ideal recovery, right? Not everybody's drawn that way. You know, not everybody mm-hmm. feels that. Some people, you know, if you were, so if that was like sort of the, to me, in my, you know, world, that would be the ideal because that means people are just becoming more present and available to help. And, you know, when people get healthy, they get generous and they want to give their gifts away. But other folks may notice that they're just not called to that, right? They, they just don't feel uh, an impetus, but they're still sober, they're still clean, and they're not doing what they did, but they're you know, in terms of the richness that's available, if they're on a a spiritual path of their own inclination, that may not be something that they're just motivated to. So, you you know, it's hard to know how people will respond. And, you know, I'm mindful of who our audience might be. And and I think 
there will probably be those who are in recovery or have it experienced with, with addictions who this resonates very directly. And there uh, probably are a lot uh, of our audience members who are finding this really interesting and insightful, but may not be, you know, in recovery technically themselves. So I'm just curious what lessons maybe you can provide. This is probably a summarizing question because I think this has been throughout the episode, but if there are things that you would point to in your work in addiction and recovery for those who are not in recovery (laughs) that they can pull from and Mm -hmm. instill in their own lives, especially as it relates to maybe their work with the Enneagram, you know, Mm -hmm. and whether that be our internal addictions perhaps that we Mm -hmm. all may have or anything along those lines. Does that spur anything? Well, yeah, it does. One of the things they can do is go to my website and read up on each of the types and how they navigate addiction Yeah, and and look at, you know, how the patterns show up as they get sober. And of course, at the end of each chapter, there are 10 suggestions for people in ongoing recovery that that may or may not ring a bell. Sure. Uh, But you can get a sense of, I mean, the the other thing is just, you know, if you take on the study of the Enneagram, uh, you begin to learn that that everybody has their own set of distortions or misunderstandings that and sufferings mm-hmm. that, for the most part, they're doing their very best to break through them. So wow. that if you understand the Enneagram, you realize that people aren't just being mean-spirited because they're mean people. They're, they're up against something that they don't understand. And so I can begin, uh, you know, to bring more compassion and patience when somebody's stuck in their patterns. And, you know, when someone's stuck in their patterns... And I'm on the outsider. It's like, well, come on, I can see it. How come you right, can't, right? right. Yeah. And of course, yeah. then they notice my patterns and wonder why I'm sandbagged in my favorite patterns. So, yeah. So, so I don't know. Uh, does that point to a little bit what you're asking? Yeah, it does. It, it definitely does. And and we'll make sure to put links to your work in the show notes for the episode, so people can go and, and read up. Because I do think I, I just don't want our audience members to miss that even though we're talking a lot about addiction and recovery, if someone's not, you know, uh, in those, you know, technical categories, uh, it seems like there's still a lot of insight and wisdom for us. Right. Well, if you begin to understand your type, you, for all of us, will will notice how I am addicted to, to my types patterns, Yeah. how I'm identified with them, how I feel like they're me. So, so, you know, the only thing that happens in, in recovery is now, I'm, I'm not using the substance anymore, and I'm up against the patterns. And, and usually, if I don't address it, I'm going to go down again. But but everybody, you know, as Don Riso used to say, the the major addiction people have is to their personality, mm. and and that and that's across the board. Yeah, I, I was actually just wondering if if there was sort of some affect that you have found that maybe sort of defines when someone's starting to feel like they're in recovery when they're being free starting to feel a little bit more free is there some sort of something that defines that that you've seen across the board or more consistently no not really the hope is that people start to experience enough well-being that the temptation of the addiction uh, loses its alluring capacity right so Mm. you know the great discovery of people if they hang in is that positive states of being when you start to experience those are way more enjoyable than the pseudo experience of the substance but mm. but but if you don't get to those states you know sometimes when people get sober or clean from a substance 
you know, their heart may be really shut down, so they don't feel much. And sort of like the juice that really makes life sweet can be hard to access. And, and then those people often, if they don't find a way to open their heart through whatever, you know, practice they're doing, at some point give up because they can't feel anything that has much fulfillment or nurturance or, or just a loving connection with people. But once that starts to open up, then there's a, a motivation. And it, and it, cap, it happens for every person in a different way. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And uh, I mean, some people come in and they're like absolutely cranky for 15 years and, and they work the program, but they are so bitchy they should be shot. They keep showing up and then one day something opens up and they're getting contact with their heart and, and a whole new recovery starts. And other people start out there right from the beginning where their heart really flourishes and opens. So it, it's really a mystery why it's so different for each person. Yeah. Hmm. And this is I get maybe sort of a follow-up question, but it just it's what came to mind. Would you say that someone that's addicted, is that sort of whatever that, that thing is, is that what's giving them an imitation of their specific essential nature to their type? And is that why it yeah. works? Yeah. Again, I, I want to be careful about saying that's how it works, but I, I think that there is a yeah. a certain quality of pleasure that they get hmm. that that hmm. You could. Uh, my experience was for myself was it felt like as I you know grown and matured was it'd be like a sort of imitation of something I knew existed but I couldn't get to when I was clean and sober. So every time I used the substance, it would sort of bring me to this elevated, uh, diluted state where I felt like I'm feeling a lot better. And then of course it kicks your ass later on, and then you're mm -hmm. down the tube again. But but there's it, it that I. That's my theory, is it mimics, you know, something that we intuitively know is available if we were healthy and present. But, you know, no way to prove it, just just uh, an opinion. Okay. That makes sense. And this is one of the, kind of, I think that one of the final last questions is, it, at least for me, uh, you know, if someone is really kind of after listening to this and it's hitting them and they're sort of realizing, oh, man, I might be, I might be more stuck than I realize and I think I might need some help. Mm -hmm. uh, what 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 are some next steps? What are some what's a place that you would you would tell them to go to? The one place that welcomes everybody is AA, and and other twelve step programs. So it's a it's a place to go and investigate. Hmm. Uh, the other thing they could do is uh, start working with a counselor and talk about what's coming up and see if there's a way uh, a counselor can help them understand how addiction works. Or, you know, like myself, I work with people who come to me from time to time who are trying to figure that out. Uh, usually people uh, come when they're, you know, right in the thick of it and really need support. But I think there, there's books to be read. Some people, not everybody likes AA. And, and mm. can, you know, there's a, I often say there's 10 different kinds of AA. There, there's the, the radical uh, right Nazi AA that, that has a different feel to it than the universalist Unitarian type AA. So there's like, you know, there's like a whole sort of mm, approach. And, and the, the thing with AA is you have to find a, a group that, res, you know, that you resonate with and, and feels like it really speaks to you. So, hmm. and the other thing is maybe even just, um, I don't know, th those are the things that pop up most for me. Yeah, I can't really think of anything off. I'll probably think of it later when, when we're off the call <laughs> and I'll, I'll send you an email or something. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, so one one more final question from me, as given that I, your location at point four and our our, our gifting to uh, see the beauty and everything to 
polish a turd, so to speak. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious. What has your personal recovery journey taught you about the beauty of yourself and others that you think you probably wouldn't have learned otherwise? Yeah. Well, you know,、uh, I think just at my best, just feeling a, a, a deep and profound connection. With、uh, people around me, just a sense of of a deep affinity、mm-hmm. with the humanity of people, and just a gratitude for.、Uh, because you know, when I started the journey, I wondered if I'd ever feel good. I just, you know,、mm-hmm. uh, I, I. If you think about notes, you know,、uh, strings on a guitar, I, I was stuck at at you know,、uh, melancholy, gloom, hopelessness, and and I just thought I would die there. So through the years,、uh, it helps if you. Live a long time, and uh, you uh, do uh, lots of healing work and meditation and practice. But yeah, just、um, just a fundamental love of people and and uh, mm. feeling uh, mm. comfortable mm. in my own skin and and feeling just the the joy of connecting with people. That for me is just、uh, such a deep treasure. Yeah, grateful for that.、Uh, and, yeah. and and yeah, and that's so. You know, you think about the type four as a, a heart centered type. Uh, when fours are caught in their patterns, there's a feeling like I don't belong, or I'm different, or I'm outsider. But when I'm present, I feel a palpable sense of connection with everyone around me.、Hmm. I am, I belong here, and I belong with them. And there's just a, I think the other thing I notice is just the unique radiance of every person. Just seeing their their own unique way they shine, which is just a joy. And of course, when you're caught in the patterns, it feels like. I might be the only unique one on the planet, and the rest are a bunch of、uh, turds on the on the ground. Like you know, you guys are just—I don't know what your problem is, but you're really shallow, and it breaks my heart. But、uh, when I'm present, I, I see that we are all on the same level, and it's it's really you know fun and joyful, and yeah,、mm-hmm. that's what comes up for me. Oh, I、yeah. I resonate that with that for sure. Yeah, I yeah, love that. Thank you. Awesome, Michael. Awesome.、Uh, thank you. Sincerely for your wisdom、yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and your yeah, in, and your insight, I, I've benefited greatly from the time we've spent together. So I'm confident our listeners、um, will as well. And I, I wanted to close because I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who are, who want to keep up with you and your work.、Uh, mm-hmm. Where can they do that? And I understand you have a new book coming out soon. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Well, so go to.、Uh EnneagramMain.com,、okay. and you will find my work. Great. And, and the book actually has been written. It's all on the on on the website. You know, half, half the chapters need revision, but in terms of getting it in hard copy, I always say、uh, it'll be done in March. I just don't know what year it's going to be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but just think about March. It's coming.、Uh, So you, it's a conundrum for sure,、uh, but、uh, the, the the core of it is already there for people to just go and read and and、uh, download and cut and paste whatever. Oh, that's great! So go to the、mm-hmm. well, and we'll put a link to your website in the show notes so people can go there and read、awesome. the book that will come out、mm-hmm. in some in March. March. March of some year. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm、That's、still、great. embodied. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's going to be a close call. But、uh, and the other thing, you know, is just to look at upcoming workshops because、yeah. there's a you know whole list.、Yeah. Like I've got one next weekend on the Inner Critic, which is really、uh, wonderful, and 
But anyway, uh, just to check it out, and they can always email me or get on my mailing list. And that's great. Awesome. Well, yeah. Great. Thank you. Wonderful. So much. Thank you so much, so much man. It's appreciate been a joy. It. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Really appreciate you all, and uh, looking forward to. Uh, Listening to whatever I said, I go. No, <laughs> no, <it's great>. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.